Let's turn to God's word, Isaiah 40. Let's uh, pray together. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a world that just seems like it is changing so fast around us, we thank you that you have given us your word, a word that never changes. And we pray you'd help us to hold on to it tonight and obey it and love it and rejoice in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, uh, maybe this is because I was a student before uh, we moved here and a teacher before that. And I worked in a university before all of that. And before all of that, I worked with students. But uh, I tend to think in academic years. Um, August, mid-August to the summer. Now, maybe you're normal and you just think of time in, uh, I don't know, January to December. Or maybe you're incredibly practical and organized and you think in tax years. Uh, April to April, that kind of thing. Uh, But I thought at the start of this uh, new uh, term, this new academic year, before we dive into a longer series uh, at night, that we would take two weeks to look at Isaiah chapter 40. Um, The mountaineer George Mallory, um, he was once asked the question, why do you want to climb Mount Everest? And his answer was, because it's there. And in a way, it's similar to preaching Isaiah 40. This is one of the the great chapters in the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament was like a mountain range, uh, I think chapter 40 of Isaiah would be one of the Himalayas. And if you've been a Christian a while, it's really familiar terrain. Um, There are verses in this chapter, especially um, at the end, that we love to pull out and uh, put on magnets or calendars or t-shirts or mugs, that kind of thing. And they've also been put to some of the most uh, beautiful music ever written. But I want us to have a a fresh look at this chapter these two weeks. And I think we'll reach the summit next week. Uh, But tonight, let's uh, stay around in, in base camp. Uh, I think even here, even in the first um, 11 verses, we're going to see some wonderful things, wonderful truths about God. And as we look at these first 11 verses, I I want us to see hopefully three things together. And the first is this, what is heard? What's heard? What's heard? The first word we hear in this chapter is a word of comfort. In fact, it comes twice, doesn't it? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her. And in our conversations with others, how we speak to each other can often be as important as what we say. And so look at the tone of this word of comfort. Look at how it's to be delivered. God comes to his people with words of consolation. And the style that message is to be communicated, it is to match the substance. God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, tenderly. 
This is love language. This is let her know she's loved, husband and wife language. So this is not like one of those um, automated emails that we get that you can't reply to. It's not like the your call is really important to us message that drives us crazy. No, this is personal. It's tender. It's clear. Cry to her. Now, because we're um, leaping into Isaiah, we might not realize how surprising this comfort is. What's significant is not just the tone, but the timing, the, the when, when this comfort comes to God's people. And it comes immediately after a message of judgment. In the previous chapter, a short chapter, which you could uh, read later, you'll see that King Hezekiah had heard that judgment was going to come at the hand of the Babylonians. Because of their sin, God's people were going to face exile. It was going to seem like God had forgotten them. And yet, before that exile even happens, before the Babylonians arrive, God speaks a word of comfort. It's just like... Genesis 3, I think. Adam and Eve sin. God announces his judgment. God makes clear there's going to be a war between the serpent and the man, and yet the men, and yet in that very moment, what does God do as well? God speaks what theologians have called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. God tells a man and woman deceived by the serpent that a serpent crusher is on the way. And I think it's like the sun coming up at midnight. It's the same kind of thing in Isaiah 40. Friends, maybe you need a reminder this evening that God is like this. God is not soft. But God loves to come to his people and comfort them. Comfort us. He loves to bring comfort when we've blown it. God loves to come alongside us and reassure us and give us hope. He loves to lift up our heads, look us in the eye and say, I still love you. That's the kind of God he is. These are the kind of words that God specializes in. Comfort, comfort my people. See, it's not just the timing and the tone that's so striking about these uh, opening words. Look really closely at what God says. If the first half of uh, verse 2 is, is love language, well, the second half of verse 2 is diplomatic language and temple language. God wants them to know that the, the war is over, that their sins have been pardoned. Um, on the 2nd of September, 1945, the U.S. General uh, Douglas MacArthur, he accepted Japan's formal surrender aboard the battleship Missouri. World War II came to an end. And yet the end of hostilities here, well, it's even more significant. See, I think if you wanted to sum up uh, the Bible with the title of a great work of literature, 
Well, you could do worse than these three words, war and peace. War and peace. The Bible, the whole Bible, isn't it, that is, our, is the story of our war with God. How God brings that war to an end. And much of the second half of Isaiah, it predicts this. At different points, the, the figure of God's servant appears. And we start to realize that he is the same person promised in Genesis chapter 3. And in chapter 53, the fourth time he appears, God's people hear these words, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And maybe the start of a new term is a a good time to remind ourselves that this is This is the heart of Christianity. This is what all of us need tonight. And before we become Christians, we are at war with God. And we might seem like lovely people. We might be very moral. But we have a problem, and we need someone to deal with that problem. And the wonderful thing is that God has provided an answer to that problem. You see, look at the word uh, double in verse um, 2, double for all her sins. And I don't think that that uh, word uh, means that they've received more and more and more punishment than they deserve for their sins. No, the experts, they tell us that the word double, it means an exact payment. It means something that, that matches what's required. It corresponds to it. This is what God has done for us in Jesus. He has provided the solution to our big problem. He has given a full, a perfect, sufficient sacrifice and satisfaction for our sins. It's no wonder when Handel wrote his Messiah that he knew these words needed music that was worthy of them. Comfort, comfort, my people. So as we look at these verses, we see uh, what's heard. But secondly, notice what's said. What's said. And it's similar, but a little bit different. What's said. Now in verses 3 to 9, there's three voices that, that cry out. And we hear the first in verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I think I've sometimes misread that or misheard that verse. Maybe you have as well. The first voice isn't a cry that happens in the wilderness. It's a cry about the wilderness. Can you see that? A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And look at what God says about this wilderness. This desert place is going to become like a raised highway. A raised highway for God. Um, The word highway means a, a kind of raised public road. 
So think of a monument valley. I think it's Route 163. Uh, it goes, uh, it's in Utah. Or think of the Queen on the Royal Mile. Uh, when the Queen comes to town, uh, what happens? Uh, the roads are closed, security's tightened, everything is uh, all tidied up, isn't it? People wave their flags. And it's similar to this. Someone special is coming, God is saying, and he wants us to get ready for that. Now, in the New Testament, um, these verses, um, they're they're picked up by each of the the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Early on, what they do is they reach back in their gospels to Isaiah 40 as they begin to write about Jesus And they say, this, what we are seeing with our own eyes, this is that. And for each of them, the big focus is on John the Baptist. He is the one they point to because he is the one who points to Jesus. God's people are called to get ready for him. Get ready to meet him. And how are they to get ready? Well, John says, doesn't he, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the same is true today. God is not someone you and I analyze. God is not someone that we have an opinion about. God is not someone that we can be neutral about. No, we need to get ready to meet him. And that means repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance. But I think uh, the big surprise here is who will see all of this? See, look at what um, Isaiah says in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And isn't it interesting? He doesn't say all Israel shall see it together. No, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh. So when this visit happens, when it occurs, it will have a universal feel. The one who's coming will be a a global figure. And God says, Isaiah says, you can know this will be the case because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This this note of certainty, it continues as we hear the second voice. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. Now notice the the repetition. All flesh will see God's glory. Verse 5. And yet all flesh have a glory that fades, verse 6. And that's true of us, isn't it? We have a glory that fades. All of us are aging. We have gray hairs. We have less hair. We have hair coming out of parts of our face we didn't expect to see hair. That's the norm, isn't it? And yet our culture is in denial about this. But we're all grass. We're all flowers that fade. 
I think there's a word here, isn't there, for those of us who are a bit younger. I won't put an age on that. It's a dangerous thing to do. But do we reflect on the brevity of our lives? There are lots of us here tonight who are at the stage where, humanly speaking, we have got a lot to look forward to. But if we are wise, we'll listen to verses 7 and 8, the the aches, the pains, the strains of life that some people in this room would tell you about. They are inevitable. We are not invincible. Now, I gave you um, some Greek earlier, the Proto-Evangelium. Here's some Latin, memento mori, memento mori, remember you will die. Previous uh, generations, they were better at this kind of remembrance. Um, In their artwork, they would often place a skull in a prominent place in a painting to, to remind the viewer that the end was a reality. And because all these things are true, I think it makes verse 8 all the more important. We have a word that stands forever. And that word stand means rise up. It's a really powerful image, isn't it? Everything around us will decay. We will all get old. We will all get frail. We will all get weak. People will come to our funeral And yet, even as we die, we will have something to hold on to, something stronger than death. We will have a word that rises up. Heaven and earth will pass away. But the words of Jesus will never pass away. Are we listening to those words? Or are we just captive to algorithms We live in a world of words, don't we? There is so much talk. There is so many opinions. But there is a word that made this world. There is a word that was made for the human heart. There's a word that will last forever. Do we value that word? Is that a word that we listen to? Do we treasure it because of whose voice it is? Well, I said there were um, three voices. We hear the third in verse 9, and a bit like the second, more than it seems that more than one person is involved, more than one person is talking here. Zion, Jerusalem, is, is personified as a herald, a person who's, who's to bring good news. And I love the imagery. If we were um, using, um, despite what I've just said about algorithms, 21st century language, we'd say, let it go viral. Lift up your voice. Don't be afraid. Get up high. Don't hold back. Shout it out. Now, sometimes we can think um, exuberance like that is a little bit over the top, maybe a bit embarrassing or out of place. Well, not when we see the news that, that's to be shared, the one we're to shout about. We've considered what's heard, what's said, 
Lastly, notice who's seen. What's heard, what's said, who's seen. Um, In the closing section, in verses um, 10 and 11, we finally catch a glimpse of the one that Isaiah has been speaking about all along. Behold your God. Behold your God. That is the message of this whole chapter. We're going to see more of this next week. But look at verses 10 and 11. I think as Isaiah introduces God to us here, we see in him, we see two qualities or attributes that very rarely go together. Immense power and great tenderness. Those things aren't usually paired, are they? But the God we meet in Scripture is not like us. Now look at his might. He comes with a mighty arm. This is a language used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God's authority and his power. He bears his arm. And as one commentator puts it, God is rolling up his sleeves here. And God himself is going to come to his people and rule and fight for them. God is not a weakling. God is a warrior. And if you know the context, if you know that exile is on the horizon, if you know that it was being experienced by God's people as they would have read these words, maybe you can see how encouraging that would be. See, I think the big fear for uh, the devout among God's people when the exile um, happened was that God was powerless. God was not as strong as they thought he was. That maybe there were places on earth that were beyond God's control, his gaze, his rule. And you and I can feel that too, can't we? Sometimes there are forces in this world that that seem so strong, that seem all-powerful. They seem to be in complete control. And yet, where is the Babylonian Empire today? Where is the Roman Empire? Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but there is a kingdom. There is another kingdom kingdom that will last forever. There's a king who is all-powerful. He rules with might. And yet he's not simply powerful, is he? Look at verse 11. And notice here the second uh, reference to God's arm, this time his arms. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, just as we heard This morning from Andy, he will gather the lambs in his arms. Here is God promising his people, a people who were rebellious and sinful and prone to wander, a people who were messed up and afraid, I will come and get you. I will find you. I won't lose you. And when that happens, look at the closeness. I think this is beautiful. God doesn't save us to hold us at arm's length. We can think that, can't we? No, he will 
Look at the verbs. He will tend. He will gather. He will carry. He will lead. Let that grammar reassure you. I will gently lead those who are with young, God says. Listen to Matir again. This uh, shepherd exercises general care. He tends his flock, is watchful for particular needs. He gathers the lambs. But he also identifies with concerns within the flock, those that have young. He cares about our cares. He gently leads those that are with young. This is what God is like. And so even before the exile happens, God is planning the restoration project. God is already announcing it to a rebellious people, already showing us what he is really like, all-powerful, and yet full of tender love. Friends, this is the God we have. Behold your God. This is Jesus promised here. This is what Jesus is for you and me individually tonight. This is what he will always be for us, all-powerful and yet full of tenderness, a good shepherd, and so good he became a lamb. Now, we all have uh, natural tendencies, don't we? Ways of looking at things uh, that are maybe shaped by our upbringing, our personality, our temperament. This can affect our view of Jesus. Do you tend to think of him as strong, powerful, mighty, or gentle, loving, kind? Well, he is all of those things, both of those things. Not safe, but good. He's mighty, but he's also merciful. And maybe this evening you need to think about one of those traits, the power, the strength of God, of Jesus, the the tenderness, the shepherding love of Jesus. Maybe you need to think about one of those things more than you normally do. Maybe you need to let Isaiah be your ophthalmologist tonight to to correct your vision. Let him do that. Let this chapter do that. Let these verses show you, show us your God as he is and as he always will be. Well, let's pray together. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and gently lead those that are with young. Heavenly Father, you know how quickly we are, quickly we forget what you are like. We thank you for a passage like this that challenges the views we often have of you. Help us behold and adore and love the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. Thank you that he is powerful and full of might and strength, and yet he is so tender with us. 
And so we worship him. We adore him tonight. We praise him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to close our service this evening singing a wonderful hymn, We Trust in You, Our Shield and Our Defender. We do not fight alone against the foe, strong in your strength, safe in your keeping tender. That's a a great summary of the last verse uh, that we read a moment ago. Uh, We trust in you and in your name we go. Let's stand and sing these words together.